0: Hello and welcome to the Dogwood Podcast for the month of June. I'm your host, Kai Nagata. BC's politicians are headed back to the legislature on June 22nd, where they will elect somebody as Speaker of the House and vote to bring down the Christy Clark government. Perhaps. Today on the podcast, we're asking two very important questions. What the heck happens next? And how does this new political landscape shape Dogwood's campaigns going forward? We'll go talk to SFU political scientist David Moskrop, who has some insights on the current situation and a very unpopular suggestion for how to resolve the current political confusion. Next, we'll hop on the ferry with Dogwood's organizing director, Laura Benson, to find out why we hit pause on the Citizens Initiative and what other opportunities have opened up instead. Then we'll talk Texas oil tankers with Sophie Harrison What are the odds Kinder Morgan tries to push forward with construction this fall? We'll find out from Sophie. Aerie Ross will be here to talk coal. Remember that promise Christy Clark made during the election campaign to ban all thermal coal exports from the B.C. coast? We don't want to let that one slip away. And finally, Lisa Sammartino will be here to tell us about the next phase of the Ban Big Money campaign. That's right, we're calling for a full-on Quebec-style corruption inquiry live on television. We've got a packed show for you today. First up, let's try to get a sense of what the heck is about to unfold in Victoria. Okay, you're listening to the Dogwood Podcast for the month of June. I'm your host, Kai Nagata, and uh, and with me now is SFU political scientist David Mosscrop. Welcome, David. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank, well, you're in your own home. <laughs> yeah, I well, should it's say it's all... nice to be here in your living room. Thank you. It's not always nice to be in my own home, <laughs> but today it's very nice. That's for the next episode. <laughs> um, so, this week we were treated to the spectacle of uh, of Christy Clark swearing in her, her cabinet. Uh, what the hell's going on? I thought she admitted defeat. Well, and I,
1: yeah, me too. And she's going to make us go through this whole Kabuki Theater presentation and that's fine i think the argument for her is going to be well you know this is we're going to the political argument we're going to make them defeat us we're going to make the ndp and the greens bring us down We're going to show British Columbians what they could have had, (laughs) you know, say goodbye to this. They could have had Andrew (laughs) Wilkinson as justice minister. That's right. And and so, you know, they go through the swearing-in of the cabinet, which was really, I mean, properly theater. Who wants to be a cabinet minister for
0: four weeks? I don't know. So next week, the House comes back, June 22nd, and then what happens? Well, then they elect a speaker. Uh, probably (laughs) but she just took (laughs) Linda Reed off the playing board and she took Sam Sullivan out of the mix. So, so what happens there? What are the options? Well,
1: so the option one is,
0: is that the liberals offer a speaker
1: and she's been coy about that. You know, at first it was no. And then it was, well, we'll, one will just materialize. They'll be beamed down from the enterprise. So who knows? Uh, Or the NDP and greens have to offer a speaker, you know, it doesn't matter who the speaker is, in that case, whoever it is the government's going down. the question is, does the speaker vote against the government in the throne speech, which they'd have to do if it's an NDP speaker right, and that's where you get into trouble because if you know it's not clear to us based on convention whether or not that's appropriate, and there's a lot of folks who think it's it's inappropriate and some you know the question is you know is the speaker a partisan or not, and he or she's not supposed to be.
0: so why is that such a big deal? Who cares?
1: Well, I mean, I care in the sense of of the speaker is, is effectively the referee of the of the house or the ledge. And their job is to make sure that everyone's playing by more or less the same rules. They have a disciplinary role as well. Um, and then they only vote by convention in the case of a, of a tie. And in, in that case, conventionally, they vote to continue debate. And if the speaker becomes a partisan, which is to say is voting for the government and is from the government party regularly... It makes it
0: hard for him or her to do their job as a neutral arbiter of the House. But don't people already look at the Speaker and, and just assume that they are in cahoots with the governing party, if that's who put them there. I, I mean, the public might, to the, to the extent that the public even knows the speaker exists. Well, I'm thinking <laughs> at the end of the last session, right? You've got Linda Reed in the chair, and all of the NDP critics are trying to ask the ministers, did these political donations influence your decisions on this file, this file, this file? And she keeps saying, next question, next question. And she won't let them answer, and she won't let the ministers actually answer the question that all the British Columbians watching, mm-hmm. all 11 of us wanted <laughs> to see, and so I got frustrated. I was like, "Why won't you just let them have the debate?" And it it seems to me, from watching Twitter, and that's a terrible sample, that people just assume. Sure, I mean, if you're a liberal and you get to wear the silly hat, doesn't mean you're not still a liberal. Yeah, I mean, traditionally speakers have done a, a pretty good
1: job at being nonpartisan when, when they're in the chair. <laughs> right. That said, okay. That said, um, say it, it. So the Christie Clark government's going to fall one way or the other. It falls. The speaker probably going to end up an NDP speaker. Now that speaker may choose to vote against the government on ordinary legislation if there's a tie, ah. and they can do that. In fact, they're supposed to do that. And if that happens, then I would be fine with it. that. Would be business as usual. They might decide to vote for the government on confidence matters because you might interpret that as keeping the status quo alive hmm. by not turfing the government. In which case, fine. Um, that, but the trade-off there is now you don't have a very functional legislature. Because at the same time, presumably the liberals are going to be pulling out every procedural trick they can to slow down the agenda. So you've got liberal procedural tricks. And on top of that, um, a speaker who may very well vote against government legislation, in which case... Very little is getting it's just done. It's hard to get bills through. Yeah, and is that better? That, I mean, I was arguing for another election, which nobody liked. I got lots
0: of interesting. That mail was my from next that. question. <laughs> so you 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 have a very unpopular suggestion, and mm. I recognize that in the tradition of academic debate, you might put a position forward in McLean's yeah. and defend it on Twitter for a few days that you might later <laughs> reevaluate. <the> <laughs> but what was your what was your rationale for calling for another election?
1: Well, it's I mean I I stand by it, and it's the same as it today as it was before, which is. I would much rather have another election where the people sort this out than have a speaker become a partisan. Because it undermines the institution. It encourages sort of tit-for-tat responses of procedural nastiness. Um, I I don't want to sacrifice what I see as the rules for political expediency. Hmm. That said, I support the NDP Green Deal. I think it's fantastic. I think it's good for British
0: Columbia. But I don't want it this way. So you're saying if there's a way that they can make it work without just reducing the role of the, the speaker to partisan monkey servant voting for the government, if there's a way to make that work, i.e., say there's a by-election and one seat changes yeah, hands. or someone crosses the floor. Someone crosses the floor, or they can cobble together a majority on a given bill based on the merits. You're fine with that.
1: Oh, yeah. And it really came down to the fact that this was 43-43. You know, if it hadn't been... It wouldn't have been a big deal, but it really was the fact that it came down to 43-43 with the NDP speaker. I support this NDP green arrangement, and I think British Columbia should have an NDP government. I've been saying that for a while. I think if they end up in this temporary arrangement and nothing gets done, the next time around at the ballot box, get they're going to get creamed. They're going to pay the price, but I'm having a hard time
0: convincing my NDP friends of that. Just a quick side question. The speaker makes an extra fifty, 50 something fifty, 50 four 50 50 something, something thousand dollars a year. yeah you have a bunch of ministers who, if you're correct, are going to lose their 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 ministerial salary in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Some of them have like eight mortgages on investment properties I'm just going to say <laughs> why wouldn't why wouldn't a disgruntled liberal take an extra fifty grand a year to take the prestige and the nice? Apartment that comes with being the speaker and say, F you, Christy Clark. Well, hey, if, if, you, if we want to be really
1: cynical about it, th- I'd imagine there's someone on the liberal side that's pretty close to a pension <laughs> that wants the legislature to work for a while. I mean, the question is will somebody do that or will they say, look, no, no, it's more important for us to hasten the demise of the NDP and the Greens so that we can run another election and win? And I think that's the Christy Clark approach. She right. thinks she can. I mean, why why stay on if you don't right. think you can win? I, I she is a, she has all the money. She has all the money, and I think that's that's a the best argument against my claim for an election is is that that the the Liberals have more money than the NDP, an unfair advantage. Which they more do. money than
0: God, I think, if we're being technical.
1: Yeah, more money than the NDP and God, which is a good which is a good one too. It's not a bad position to be in if
0: you're Christy Clark. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you need more, it's not hard to get. She's raised millions since election day. Yeah. Just exactly. by raising the specter. So um I guess you've outlined the possibility where you have an NDP speaker who votes against the government. There's the random possibility of a liberal speaker coming forward who just wants the extra salary. Can you think of any other way in which this NDP Green governing coalition can make it work for a while?
1: Well, First of all, I don't want to be too cynical. I mean, you could imagine a liberal coming forward out of duty. <laughs> I mean, Why are you it's laughing? logically involved. Why are you laughing? It's These logically... people got into politics for all the right reasons. I mean, it's funny. is that Yeah, as a quick aside, like I've met a lot of politicians. And for the most part, they've been like really dedicated, smart, hardworking people. And most of them are like that. But there's a couple of shits in there, obviously. <laughs> uh, I would I would hope that, that one of the better ones would come forward. But I, I'm not, you know, let's partisanship is a hell of a drug mm-hmm. um, as is caucus pressure but you know i i think the ndp means the best they can do is they'll have two things to do one is try to bargain with the liberals whenever they can uh and two um whip 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 they're gonna have to follow the rules and be you know understand procedure and organize better than any party in the history of british columbia because we've never had 43 43 i mean it's one person and you lose is, you know, it's easy to get embarrassed. It's easy to lose votes. It's easy to lose the government in that situation. Hence the reason, by the way, that this thing's not lasting four years. Maybe it'll last 18 months. You think it'll last long enough to get uh, ban big money legislation in? I would imagine
0: that money out of politics will be one of the first bills. Maybe even the first bill. David Mosscrop, bringing the Rick James references. The coffee. The hazelnut scented coffee oh. in his own living room. Oh, don't tell anybody that. It's because I ran out of regular beans. Everybody... <laughs> that's fine everybody's everybody's got excuses <laughs> david Moscroft, sfu political scientist thanks a lot my pleasure because we are big fans of metaphor at dogwood it is fitting that we now find ourselves on a a giant ship steaming its way across the salish Sea so god damn it <laughs> Okay, let's try that again. Uh, We are on the Queen of New Westminster. I'm here with uh, Dogwood's organizing director, Laura Benson. Mm -hmm. Hello, Laura. Hello. And uh, apart from this being the only time in your busy schedule that we could find to record the podcast, I find it fitting that we're here on a giant 550-foot-long, 14,000-ton ship steaming its way across to Victoria.
2: Yes, towards, towards New Horizons as we are at Dogwood.
0: And in a vessel that, while mighty can take a while to turn around or change course
2: indeed indeed
0: here we find ourselves on the shores of a brave new electoral horizon looking out at new democratic vistas and uh, they're green it brings me to my first question which is uh, about the citizens initiative
2: right because
0: we've spent four years uh, building this this mighty vessel and preparing we actually got closer than we've ever been to uh, to launching the thing we submitted legislation to elections BC so why hit pause now
2: well as I said to our many volunteers and organizers last week I think because we were prepared to launch and win an initiative campaign we didn't have to run it um, so we've we've taken a long time to build that capacity um, and the secret is that building that capacity makes us ready to build power for any moment like a provincial election and um, and to exercise that power after an election that has a surprising outcome. So I think there's there's so many new opportunities now that we are not facing a hostile government in Victoria. Um, We have opportunities to use our democratic system without having to launch a full blown initiative campaign to achieve to stop Kinder Morgan and ban big money and even push for a corruption inquiry.
0: So tell me more about that. How do you see those opportunities playing out now that we have the, the House coming back?
2: Right. So in where, where Dogwood is strong, um, where we have teams on the ground, there are a whole bunch of newly elected MLAs, uh, Green Party MLAs, NDP MLAs, even BC Liberal MLAs, who we now can sit down with. Um, our teams are preparing to meet with their MLAs to make sure that they have the support they need from our grassroots community to do the right thing, to keep hold to their promises that they've put forth in their, their governing agreement um, to, to stop Kinder Morgan, to ban big money, um, and we're gonna push, push as well for a, co- a corruption inquiry. So we're out, it's canvassing season, it's prime time to be out talking to your neighbors about these amazing victories that we could achieve in, in short order. So we're gonna be out canvassing um, at every opportunity, everywhere that Dogwood has a team, And, yeah, sitting down with those new MLAs.
0: It's fun to be bringing forward a bill that we spent months writing. And instead of having to embark on a months-long adventure all across BC, gathering signatures from every corner of the province, to actually think about being able to just hand it over to MLAs and say, hey, do your job. Do
2: your job. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to do it for them. Um, So, yeah, that's a much more, you know traditional way of exercising our democratic muscle. It should be the last resort for citizens to have f- to put forward their own legislation. Um, but now that we're prepared, now that we have people ready in so many ridings, um, and the bill, like you said, we can uh, we can ask our new representatives to just take that legislation forward for us.
0: Last question. What do you tell people who are looking at the, the volatile uh, electoral situation and the the drama around the speaker and the seat count and who worry about you know, will they bring the government down or won't they? And what if there's another election? And we're hearing those kinds of anxieties. So what do you tell people on the ground?
2: Right. Well, it is kind of wild to sit back and watch, but I think again, the secret of slowly building the capacity, the organizing capacity to run an initiative campaign is that it also gives you backup in any uncertain situation. So we still have teams on the ground. We still have thousands of volunteers in every riding we still have thousands of supporters um, that can be ready to mobilize um, at any turn so we just came through a provincial election where we got out the vote Uh, we've got a lot of practice at this now so i think we have the foundation in place that we can weather those those ups and downs
0: it's gonna be fun watching the the uk parliament sort itself out and the (laughs) little colonial legislature here on the edge of the empire, sorting it all out. Well, brave new shores await.
2: Brave new shores. Thank you, Captain. Thank you, Kai.
0: We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Okay, back to the abandoned car wash slash Dogwood Burnaby office. I'm Kai Nagata. This is the Dogwood Podcast, and in front of me is Pipeline and Tanker campaigner Sophie H. Harrison, fun fact about Sophie, she once juggled a soccer ball for half an hour straight without dropping it just to see if she could. My first question is why?
3: (laughs) It's a fair question. Um, My soccer coach when I was 12 challenged our whole team to see how many we could juggle, and it was considered the highest milestone. So it took me a few years, but I finally got uh, 1,000 touches on a soccer ball before it hit the ground. And yeah, it took quite a while. got a little boring.
0: And you're still not allowed to use your hands. No, that's generally
3: how soccer works.
0: I'm not a sportsing master. Is that the term? (laughs) Uh, Okay, Kinder Morgan wants to put shovels in the ground this fall. Can they do it? Well, they are
3: certainly trying to convince us so. Um, I think it's been really interesting since the BC election just how much they've doubled down on their rhetoric that this is the plan. They made a final investment decision. They recently filed their construction schedule with the National Energy Board, saying they want to try to start stocking up pipes in BC this fall and drilling through Burnaby Mountain in very the winter. Detailed,
0: very detailed Super
3: plan. detailed. If you would like to know how soon your neighborhood will be dug up by Kinder Morgan according to their plan, you can find it on the NEB website. Um, but I really think this is all them trying to get over the major obstacles in front of them. They're trying to talk tough, but I think there's still several very massive obstacles before they'll be able to really finish up this project. There's still 19 lawsuits. We don't know if the approval by the federal and provincial government of this was even legal or constitutional until those are resolved. Uh, Kinder Morgan still doesn't have a final route approved for their project. There's a lot of folks, hundreds from Chilliwack to Burnaby around the province that have submitted opposition to try to protect valuable community assets like their drinking water, Um, and of course the BC election.
0: Right, every tool in the toolbox. Um, Okay, so at the same time, you're suggesting that Kinder Morgan is basically bluffing, that they're talking tough in order to try to drive the project forward, keep investors confident. Exactly. Keep the suit of armor on. um, But the feds are also really digging in their heels.
3: Yeah, we also have seen that since the BC election. Um, Just last week, Justin Trudeau's liberals backed up a conservative party motion to try to ram Kinder Morgan through. Um, This motion had all kinds of... Pretty horrible stuff in it, saying this project has social license, uh, reaffirming that it's within federal jurisdiction. Uh, the one that pissed me and a lot of my friends off the most was saying this project is, quote, safe and environmentally sound, as recognized and accepted by the National Energy Board. The National
0: Energy Board that we slandered during the election and promised to replace. We
3: called it broken. We said we'd redo the process on Kinder Morgan, Which and then our own
0: panel... On National Energy Board, revitalization recommends be disbanded and moved back to Ottawa.
3: Exactly. So I think, you know, there was fortunately a few MPs that stood strong on this one. There was two Liberal MPs that voted against their own party, uh, Terry Beach and Hetty Fry, standing up for local constituents, as well as NDP MPs, Elizabeth May. But yeah, the rest of the Liberals really just like fully backed away on their promises on... The NEB and Kinder Morgan, I mean, they did it before, but just like really digging in and siding with the conservatives on that one.
0: Do you think that the amount of bullshit in Ottawa that you develop a tolerance? Like, is this. I guess so. Immune? It must just all become normal. Like, just the sheer number of promises manja, manja, they've manja, broken. And every then. Day, and then it just <laughs> eventually you become. Stop noticing. Yep. Good Lord. Whew. Uh, Alberta Premier. Rachel Notley. She's also taking an aggressive stance. It really feels like folks are lining up against us uh, these days. Uh, she said her counterparts in BC do not have the tools to stop Kinder Morgan, and by the way, neither do First Nations. Um, what's your read on that? What tools does the government of BC have in its toolbox to, to stop this thing as they've promised?
3: It is the question of the moment, yeah. I mean, so we know the province of BC under Christy Clark's government, epic flip-flop last January, issued an environmental assessment certificate for this project, but the reality is the province still has to hand over um, as many as 60 more permits before this project can go forward. Um, There's also a lot of great folks talking about this from the legal community. Uh, In a recent Globe and Mail editorial, UBC law prof Jocelyn Stacey pointed out that um, the Squamish First Nation has sued the province, has taken the province to court uh, over breaking their constitutional responsibility to First Nations to consult and accommodate them um, with respect to this project. So the B.C. government could go to the court. You know, this new B.C. government between the uh, Greens and the NDP Um has said they're committed to the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples and so they could go to the court and say you know Squamish is right they were not properly consulted and accommodated and that could help cancel the permits and the authorizations that the BC government has already issued um so there's lots of options
0: there Wow that what a judo move they could just say we agree with the lawsuit against us Squamish our is right incarnation Yep as the BC government screwed up therefore our certificate is invalid
3: Absolutely and huh. you know it's possible that's the conclusion that the legal process would have gotten to in the end, but that's a very quick way if the BC government decides that they don't want to see that out. That actually, right? So save a lot many of money public dollars. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Anything else? Um yeah, another option we've chatted about a lot is um, obviously as we've been talking about Kai, this process never went through a real trustworthy review to determine if it's safe for um, the people who live here. So the province of BC using their jurisdiction over health and safety could put that pro to, could put this project to a health and safety review um, a review that could actually meaningfully look at the full risks to our health posed by an oil spill on, you know, whether that's, um, impacts of toxins or on drinking water or food security, um, impacts of climate change from this proposal, um, we could actually see a real health and safety review, and that sits squarely within provincial jurisdiction.
0: Which the National Energy Board refused to do. The the review now accepted as sound and safe by the federal MPs who voted for it.
3: Never really looked at that. Yep.
0: Cool. Okay. Um, well, there's one other thing. You were going to do a... Um, You're going to do a special episode of the podcast next week, aren't you?
3: Yeah, stay tuned. Um, So this question about what power does the government of BC really have and so many more, we're going to be busting the top Kinder Morgan myths that the oil lobby is trying to spin. Um, They got a lot of money to pour into ads to try to convince us of um, arguments that are really just convenient for them, but not actually, for the most part, true. Uh, So we're going to be (laughs) digging into those (laughs) next week. Stay tuned.
0: Yes, we do live in a brave new post-fact era. Okay, right on. So watch for that special podcast next week, Busting Kinder Morgan Myths with Sophie Harrison, soccer ball juggler extraordinaire, and uh, something of an expert on uh, all of the ways that we can (laughs) screw over Kinder Morgan and send them home. Sophie, thank you for uh, taking the time today.
3: My pleasure, Guy.
0: Okay, let's jump into the topsy-turvy world of coal. I've got Ari Ross, Dogwood's Beyond Coal campaigner, here to talk about the bold promise made by Premier Christy Clark during the election campaign. Welcome, Ari.
4: Thank you, Guy.
0: <laughs> so if uh, Christy Clark's promise actually uh, came to light, it seems like the, the BC Liberal plan would take thermal coal off the rails in BC entirely. That would be it for the industry. So what did she actually promise?
4: Yeah, it would be a massive win uh, for those fighting thermal coal um, all across the Pacific Northwest. So she because per- we're the
0: last community, right? Or we're the we're the back door. Everybody yeah. else has shut it down. That's right. And so this could completely seal the West Coast to thermal coal exports.
4: That's exactly right. Wow. Um, so yeah, ports in Washington and Oregon have said no to this stuff, um, and we've been calling on our governments to do the same. And nothing had changed up until. Two weeks before the um, election, when Christy Clark called for an outright ban on thermal coal exports, and that's not just American coal. Um, this is talking about any kind of thermal coal.
0: So that would include Alberta.
4: That's right. Wow.
0: Um, so how would she actually do it? What is the what is the the mechanism for for getting coal off the rails?
4: Yeah. Um, so the province doesn't actually have the power to explicitly ban a product. That's up to the federal government. But what we can do is impose um, a regulatory fee um, and we can call for thorough health reviews. And so um, this regulatory fee or a... Carbon levy, as we've been calling it, um, is something that they could implement very swiftly. They can set it at any rate that they want. Um, what Christy Clark has proposed is seventy dollars a ton to account for combustion, processing, um, mining, and transportation of the fuel.
0: $70 a ton, how much is how much is coal worth a ton?
4: Um I think it's fifteen dollars right now for powder river basin coal per ton.
0: So it would completely wipe out any possible profits. What were we proposing?
4: Yeah, um, so when we originally proposed this two years ago, we actually calculated it to be equal to the existing BC carbon tax, and it was about $1. thirty. So with the expansion to the carbon tax that we're going to see under a potential NDP-Green alliance, um, it would go up. But yeah, what we proposed was $1. thirty because we weren't talking about combustion at that time.
0: So we proposed $1.30 two weeks before the vote, Christy Clark proposes a seventy dollars a ton levy on thermal coal. The only way she gets there is by taxing the combustion of the coal in other jurisdictions. In other words, it's being burned in power plants in China and and we're dinging the coal producers for the carbon impact of that combustion. That seems totally unprecedented.
4: It is totally unprecedented. Um this is, yeah, this has never happened as far as I know with any leader. Um, at least in the Western world, uh, that <laughs> has decided that they want to tax something that both is not produced there and is not used there. So this is not um, something that we've ever seen before.
0: Right. It kind of violates the uh, the whole the whole charade of of international climate negotiations where you say okay anything that isn't burned within our borders doesn't count right so we can Mm -hmm. export unlimited coal oil and gas and and we only count you know what comes out of our tailpipes in, in canada so that's that's wild um have we seen any reaction to this i mean any any movement from the other two parties
4: Yeah, um, I think it's still early days on this, um, but now that the legislature is being called back in just a week, um, I think we're going to see a lot more movement on it, and um, when Christy Clark did propose that, it was something that the Greens echoed. They've been calling for an outright ban on thermal coal for years, Um, and the NDP are committing to at least calling for comprehensive health reviews, um, which is something we never had on any new coal projects.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a seems like a, a no brainer. But um, even if the NDP didn't support the levy idea between the liberals and the greens, that's 46, 46 votes. Right. That's a majority. So you could uh, potentially get that legislation through even without the support of the governing party, if that's how things shake out. Yeah. Interesting. OK. Mm-hmm. Um. So how how is Dogwood going to uh, lock in this this win? Because it seems like it's it's closer than it's ever been in the history of the coal campaign. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, this is unprecedented and a really wonderful moment for all of us. Um, I don't know if I ever really expected this to happen (laughs) in all my years of coal campaigning. So yeah, we'll be talking with representatives from every party, um, getting them to, you know, have the political backing and the power from the people um, to act to protect BC's health and our economy by opposing American thermal coal exports um, and that
0: includes the BC Liberal MLAs who are right along the, the route, right? There's a bunch of caucus members who are now representing uh, residents in, in Delta and uh, White Rock.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And
0: we got to keep them from, from backsliding on that promise.
4: That's right. Um, yeah, even, you know, in uh, South Surrey, Tracy Reedies or Reddy's, I'm not sure if I said that right, um... You know, posted ads in the local paper talking about how she wants to say no to U.S. thermal coal. Yeah, and I don't think this is something we're going to let them backtrack from.
0: All right, well, mm-hmm. exciting times for the uh, the coal campaign. Indeed. Thanks so much for coming in, Ari.
4: Thank you for having me, Kai. It's a treat as always.
0: To wrap up the program today we're going to talk about big money and why BC is overdue for a corruption inquiry. We launched the Ban Big Money campaign 14 months ago and we had no idea the impact it would have on the political landscape in BC. Since April 2016 we've watched this thing balloon into a major issue in the provincial election and now the two parties poised to form government have promised that their first act will be to ban big money in politics. Joining me to talk about where this Wild West rodeo is headed next, Dogwoods Democracy Campaigner, and, I might add, real-life horse tamer, Lisa Sammartino. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. What is the worst horse you've ever dealt with?
5: When when I was uh, about 10, I got a fat pony, and she Seems was... Seems nice. That sounds nice. It does. Yeah, they trick you, and she was so terrible. <laughs> I rode her for three years, and she never, like, jumped in an... Like jumped jump to jump. We would stop at all the jumps. And then one day, you know, her show, she jumped all the jumps. And we just retired her.
0: Finish on a high note. Yeah. <laughs> like Rich Coleman. Just shuffle them out of housing, shuffle them out of LNG. Bad pony. Okay, so in the next coming, in the next few months, it sounds like the government uh, will introduce laws to regulate BC's out-of-control political donation system. So we're hoping to be able to lock that victory down. What would a good version of that bill actually look like?
5: Well, we've been talking a lot about banning corporate and union donations. That is very... It's key to restoring decision-making into people's actual everyday people who live here totally. into our hands. Level the playing field. Just like every almost every other jurisdiction in Canada, federal, provincial. Um, we also really want to see... No more out-of-province donations. They should be limited to residents of B.C., Canadian citizens. Um, So to be a resident of B.C., you have to live here for at least six months a year. Um, And then we'll stop seeing things like, you know, Malaysian-owned companies donating to get a LNG terminal, like American Super PACs supporting trophy hunting in B.C. donating. Which Um, is
0: ironic because even in America, you can't donate as a foreigner.
5: Yeah, I know.
0: Okay, so corporate, union, foreign donations. What else?
5: And then we need a a proper limit on individual donations um, because we know once the corporations are out, they still have people on the ground who can donate um, large sums of money. In Quebec, this is $100 per person per year, because possibly because of their corruption issues.
0: Totally. They were trying to prevent corporations from divvying up money between a bunch of individual people. Exactly. Using them as straw, straw donors.
5: And uh, and Alberta actually, since Notley's been in power, introduced ban big money laws. They had an individual limit of fifteen thousand dollars per person, <laughs> which they actually limited last fall to four thousand because of the. That's still high. It is high. Yeah, federally there's a limit of fifteen hundred and fifty dollars, um, but we've actually done polling on this, and we found that British Columbians are comfortable with less than a thousand dollars on average, about seven hundred dollars. Per person per year
0: that's still more than 50 bucks a month like i don't know what normal person is giving more than 50 bucks a month to a politician but anyway uh okay so that sounds pretty good so that's what we'll be keeping an eye out for and, and i guess we'll have to stop those bad weasels in the lobbying uh, industry who are going to try to push back and weaken the legislation
5: Yeah, absolutely. And just preemptively coming up with legislation that limits cash for access to ministers and the premier, um, like they're doing federally and in Ontario, they're having problems with that. If we could preemptively strike on that and have just a robust, really strong bill um, to prevent any possible problems in the future.
0: Okay, awesome. So that sounds like it's on track, and that is what we've been asking for. That's what the Ban Big Money campaign has been calling for. Um, We've also launched a campaign calling for a corruption inquiry, which is a, a, a very different beast, um, looking at political donations and how uh, they've influenced major decisions made by the government, why not just uh, quit while you're ahead like that uh, fat pony and just uh, take the ban big money legislation and move on? Uh,
5: well, we need to keep the public pressure on to make sure that this bill isn't watered down. If we stop advocating for this, we are worried that politicians will just you know, make a, a very limited version and move on. Um, a good example would be the $15,000 limit in Alberta. Mm-hmm. We gave you your ban on corporate donations and... Uh, and uh, Just
0: give them another mechanism. Exactly. To, right, okay. But so there, keep the pressure on.
5: Absolutely. There's problem... <laughs> dog just sneezed.
0: That's a dog sneezing. Yeah. <laughs>
5: um, the problem also is that there's major projects that have been approved, like Kinder Morgan, which could have been approved because of the influence of corporate donations. And if that's the case, those projects need to be sent back to the drawing board, but we need real answers on that. We need to know if this was the if this was the reason. Um, and Kinder Morgan of course isn't the only one. We also have Mount Polly that's back in in um, operation, the biggest environmental disaster in BC history. No
0: criminal charges.
5: Yeah, Imperial Metals of course is a large large BC liberal donor. Um, the out of control real estate market that continues to be a wild beast Running through our province outside of the Lower Mainland now, um, and that we've seen uh, individual BC Liberal ministers personally benefiting um, with their properties, and uh, and we've also looked a little bit at the health firings, which which is mm. um, an ongoing problem in BC. People are still talking about it. People still want answers, and the impact that pharmaceutical companies could have had on those decisions. Mm. Um, of course, in the past, we've also talked about road maintenance contracts, We talked about this in March on this podcast, um, which was for us our initial red flag, because that's the same situation we saw in Quebec.
0: So in doing the work in, in working on the, the campaign uh, for ban big money legislation, you found a bunch of examples that warrant deeper digging. Exactly. So what exactly, what is a public inquiry? How does it, how would you define it?
5: So it's, um, it's similar to what you would see on TV with like a corporate courtroom drama. So um, a commissioner, the, the cabinet, um, like the ministers in the government will appoint a commissioner who will put together a panel. Um, they can subpoena witnesses, um, pull documents, um, and basically do a very thorough independent investigation of decision making.
0: So they have powers, in other words, that you don't have and that an investigative journalist doesn't have. Absolutely. To actually get the, the paper trail Get those witnesses on the stand.
5: Yeah, exactly. We've seen examples of this in B.C. already. Um, the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry a couple of years ago, um, the Braidwood Commission. And then, of course, uh, we've talked to Dogwood about the Gummery Inquiry, which was looking at federal decisions um, in relation to ad scam. Yeah, and the sponsorship
0: scandal yeah, federally.
5: Yeah, and Jean
0: Chrétien and- with his golf ball waving it around on TV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, people remember this stuff.
5: Yeah, and that, I mean, that really shaped federal laws around provincial donations. The recommendations from that inquiry made the $1,500 limit that we have right, today. Right, that's
0: what precipitated them getting rid of corporate donations.
5: Yeah, and likewise with the Charbonneau Commission in Quebec, which we uh, we did look in depth in March in our podcast at. Um, but exact same thing.
0: So how, just explain to me how this is different, because the RCMP is already investigating.
5: Yeah, the RCMP is currently investigating. Um, as far as we know, their mandate is the straw donors, um, which, of course, is illegal. Lobbyists who donate in their own name and get reimbursed by people <coughs> Kinder they work Morgan. For. <clears throat> <laughs> and uh, and this, what we're talking about right now in BC, is not, it's not, not illegal.
0: <laughs> right, the lawmakers set the laws, yeah. so it's not illegal, but it might be unethical.
5: Yeah, and a commission will look at how a decision is made, regardless if it's illegal
0: or not. Sounds good to me. I would like answers on some of this. I mean, it's fun to raise the questions, but uh, ordinary British Columbians only have so much ability to dig loose the the actual notes, the the, the cabinet meetings, the lobbying schedule, the... Uh, what was said between people and, and with a government that triple deletes its emails and doesn't write anything down, sometimes you need to be able to actually force a witness to come on the stand, right? Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Kinder Morgan, but there's nine other issues that you've highlighted uh, as as part of a, a list of 10 reasons to hold a corruption inquiry. Uh, where can people check out that full list and uh, and sign the petition?
5: Uh, CorruptionBC.ca corruptionbc.ca. We do have a list of nine other issues. We talked about a little bit here, um, and we know this isn't a full list. We know there, are, you know, the tentacles of big money have, have run rampant on this province, and, and we know there's more, um, and we'll be seeking feedback in the future. For now, sign the petition.
0: Corruptionbc.ca. Well, that's Dogwood's democracy campaigner, Lisa Sammartino. Thank you, Lisa. You're welcome. Well, that's it for the podcast this week. You can download our show every month at dogwoodbc.ca or subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app. Check out pictures from around BC on our Instagram, dogwoodbc. Watch videos and catch up on news on our Facebook page or come get chirpy with us on Twitter, at dogwoodbc. We can always use your help amplifying our campaigns and fact-checking the trolls. Next time, Sophie Harrison will be in the host chair for a special episode debunking some of the top myths about the Kinder Morgan pipeline and oil tanker project. For example, did you know that the expansion plan does not include replacing the existing pipe, which is now 64 years old? Because according to Kinder Morgan, like the Brooklyn Bridge, it's made of steel, and steel has an operating lifetime of infinity. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Tune in for more Flabbergasting Facts with Sophie Harrison. I'm your host, Kai Nagata. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We'll talk to you next time, BC.